underloaded, low paid at large, I'm loaded, low paid. I think it's fair to say that Western democracies are currently going through a period of great change on many levels as, as they find the fundamental tenets of their implicit social contract facing extreme challenges from forces that espouse ideas that once flourished only on the outskirts of mainstream thought. In his latest book, Disruption, Why Things Change, David Potter, the Francis W. Kelsey Collegiate Professor of Greek and Roman History and Arthur F. Thurnau, professor at the University of Michigan, asked what it is that makes society transforming change possible by looking at the most significant events of the last 2,000 years of Western history. It's published by Oxford University Press and brings Professor Potter to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here, Leonard. Oh, it's a fascinating topic. You write that answering the question of how things change is a fundamental mission of historical study, uh, but won't future historians have a lot of work to do when they study our times? Well, they certainly they certainly will. Uh, but I think, again, as historians, what we try to do so that we can use the past to think about the present is to look at recurring patterns and to look and say, if we're starting to see certain things happening today, what are the likely options? Where are things going to go? I mean, you know, granted, we've seen some remarkable things happen, uh, and from 2016 onwards in particular. Uh, but that really raises for us a question, how is it that somebody who's completely unqualified for office uh, could be elected? What does that tell us about the structure of our democracy? Um, why is it that representatives of one of the leading parties in this country seem to be uh, promulgating lies all the time. Uh, even when you can just turn on your TV set and see that's the case. Uh, what has gone wrong in the sort of basic way we talk to each other that this kind of thing can happen? And where else in time have we seen this happen? Uh, and certainly if we go back to Germany in the 1930s or France in the 1790s, uh, we can see very similar kinds of things uh, where fantasies pass for reality. Uh, and there's been a fundamental loss of faith in the institutions, the central institutions of a society. Is it both political and social? Uh, are, are they connected? They're very much connected with each other um, because uh, if people are generally feeling uh, pretty good about themselves, uh, they're they're feeling that they're being treated fairly, that their uh, basic conditions of their lives are pretty reasonable. They're not really going to be attracted very often uh, to the extreme fringes uh, of uh, social thought. Uh, but if we have a case where people feel that they are uh, locked in place, uh, that this is, there's nothing is being done to help them out, that all of their work is going to simply enable somebody else to do extremely well, uh, well, then they are going to start turning aside. They are going to look uh, for other ideas. They are going to look and begin to demand that there is uh, radical change. Um, but, but doesn't it begin on the fringes? Because as you write, the mainstream has always been conservative, which would exactly. slow things um, down. Well, 
the the point here is that the ideas are out on the fringe and that if people are are basically doing okay they're going to leave them out on the fringe if we take you know the example of the bolsheviks in russia uh, i mean lenin hadn't even lived in russia for 10 years he was so much out on the fringe for more than 10 years before 1917 uh, but it was the collapse of faith in the central government uh, first of all the failure of the czar and then spectacularly of the provisional government to bring peace instantly that undermined itself and opened up this space uh, for Lenin uh, and the Bolsheviks uh, to suddenly occupy a very prominent position and ultimately the dominant position in Russia. Um, you can see the same thing. Uh, wait, and, wait, and the cover of your book uh, is a, uh, a painting of, of Lenin addressing a group, giving uh, a speech. I, Exactly. And, um, you know, I know certainly will not claim to be any great fan of uh, fan of his. Um, but when you look at the way that he, with a single minded uh, force, gathered together the sort of disparate uh, Bolshevik party and provided it a discipline. So everybody was moving forward at one time together. Um, it was an, it was really an extraordinary political uh, achievement. I mean, this is a man who'd never actually run anything in his life before he took over uh, Russia in 1917. But he had a very clear idea that he was going to establish a new society that was based on his uh, his party. Was he one of the beginnings of the uh, the, the uh, political consequences as a result of technological change, which today, of course. Uh, is all about the internet, which has become a major game changer? Uh, Lenin certainly knew how to dominate uh, the media of his time. And he uh, was very effective in dealing with the uh, newspapers, for instance, in St. Petersburg and Moscow, putting uh, his opponents out of business, uh, essentially. Uh, but he certainly wasn't the first person to do that. Uh, and if we go well well back in time uh, to the period of the Protestant Reformation, I mean, the first, I suppose, really great manipulator of media uh, was actually Martin Luther, uh, who's understood that the printed word uh, could have an enormous impact, and he knew exactly uh, how to write for a large audience, keep it short, uh, make the points very clear, speak the language of the people that you are trying to reach. Uh, and uh, he was really able to dominate the uh, sort of uh, 16th century uh, version of the airwaves uh, in ways that his opponents simply couldn't understand. They hadn't really understood the value and the possibility uh, of this new technology. Uh, and uh, again, when we turn, say, to France in the uh, 1780s, uh, what the extreme wing of the revolutionaries, uh, friends of Robespierre, people like Marat, uh, could do was, again, they control the media, they control the press, they dominate uh, the message and the conversation. And again, um, in this case, these are people who are absolutely coming from the political fringe 
uh, of French society, just as Martin Luther was certainly on the fringe of uh, intellectual society in Germany, but their use of technology uh, is what uh, enables them uh, to take over the conversation. Aren't there always ideologies that develop in opposition to the status quo? So what uh, in, what allows one uh, to suddenly come to the fore while others just kind of disappear? It has to do really with the skill of the leadership, uh, the discipline of the leadership um, in many cases, in most cases, uh, and uh, this was actually something uh, here that Lenin himself uh, said that you need a core of highly organized um, believers uh, to actually move the message forward. And if you don't have uh, that kind of organized core of people, it's going to fail. Um, one of the things that uh, Lenin uh, looked to very often was the lessons of the French Revolution. Um, and he could see, for instance, how the leaders of the Jacobin Club were able to outmaneuver everybody in the center uh, and to establish their position uh, as the dominant position. Uh, Hitler understood uh, the same thing in Germany. Uh, look at the Nazi party or the, like the Bolsheviks, a very, very tightly organized group of people. Uh, when we turn to uh, back to the period of the Reformation, again, uh, Martin Luther and his supporters, his immediate supporters, were a small group of very organized people. They knew each other very well. They knew how to work together very well. And importing their ideas to other places, we see similar groups of people. Um, I mean, you know, all fans of uh, Hilary Mantel uh, will think about uh, Thomas Cromwell, but this was a guy who really knew how uh, to operate, and he and Cramner were able to create a form of Protestantism uh, that would work in in England. Uh, if we go all the way back to our first disruption in this book, that is the conversion of the Roman Empire to Christianity, uh, we can name most of the people who were around Constantine at the time that he converted to Christianity and started shaping a new Christian message that could actually be a message that uh, was spread around the empire and provide an organization for the Christian church. Was a disruption behind the teachings of a Jewish shepherd becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire hundreds of years after the death of Jesus? Um, what we see there is that the message of Jesus was very much of a countercultural counter message throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, the the basic ideology of the Roman world was that people were rich because they deserved to be rich. Uh, they would maintain their position um, through charitable donations uh, for public institutions, uh, such as um, controlling the price of grain, putting on spectacular entertainments. Hmm. Sounds uh, like today. Sort of thing. Um, and uh, making sure that, you know, that the the, the poor understood their place, as it were. The idea uh, that everybody was equal in the eyes of God was a radical idea. I mean, if you looked at the way an ancient uh, sacrifice took, took place, the important person standing up there with the animals about to be sacrificed, uh, and everybody else is standing back uh, and watching. Uh, the, the idea that 
uh, faith in God uh, can give you equal status. And in the early Christian movement, uh, it was also the case that women were very significant uh, figures in the movement uh, in ways that really would be very difficult in conventional society. So it really turned everything uh, on its head. Uh, and that was part of, very much part of the appeal. If you just couldn't, just tired of uh, the world around you um, and this constant messaging uh, that uh, you should stay in your place and that is the right thing, uh, turning to Christianity uh, was, was a real option. No, that's, as I said, it sounds in some ways similar to what we're going through today. And had the Roman Empire survived a pandemic in a, in a century before Constantine? Are pandemics major disruptors? They are absolutely major disruptors. And there had been a serious uh, plague. Um, we think it was really a massive smallpox epidemic, which wiped out a substantial portion, uh, 10 to 20 percent of the population of the empire. Uh, and the knock-on effect of that economically uh, was simply that the imperial budget didn't work anymore, and the, the imperial government uh, was not able to do its basic thing, which is dominate the frontiers. Uh, and again, the ideology of the system uh, was undermined by this combination of pandemic uh, followed by economic crisis and warfare. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is David Potter, whose latest book is Disruption, Why Things Change. It's published by Oxford University Press. Interestingly, uh, Constantine didn't compel people to follow him. And you note that it's ironic that the converter of the empire to Christianity followed a far more peaceful path than the Catholic Church did during the Protestant Reformation when it used violent repression. So uh, he, he did, was, was uh, Constantine just giving people something that they wanted at the time? Well, Constantine had grown up in the court of the Emperor Diocletian, one of whose final acts was to launch an empire-wide persecution of the Christian church. And I think that Constantine could see through his own experience that the idea to that you could compel belief uh, was a total failure. Uh, that even Diocletian had to revoke his edicts. They just didn't work. And so having learned that lesson, what Constantine could see was that the way to get people to follow him was to provide advantages uh, to those who decided they were Christians. But even in the last years of his life, some of the most significant of his officials were still pagans. Uh, it was up to them to change their minds. And what we see in the course of the 50 years after uh, the death of Constantine, is that the speed of conversion to Christianity increases enormously uh, as people want to be part of what they see to be a successful organization, an organization uh, that certainly provides services uh, for the poor, which was an important aspect of the Christian church, uh, but it's also it's connected with the imperial government. It is exciting, it's new, it's it's different uh, from the past, uh, and it looks like it's part of a, a successful vision of the future. 
Uh, this is very different, of course, from what we see when the church is in very defensive mode uh, in the 16th century, where uh, it's really no longer a movement for change, uh, but it really is uh, dedicated to preserving the status quo. Although, like so many of the other movements, the church had certain uh, different groups break off, um, not as many as with Protestants, uh, but similar, I guess, in some ways to what happened with Islam and, and other places and other religions. Um, is that just a natural consequence? It is a, it is a natural consequence. Uh, and again, what Constantine uh, learned very rapidly is he was trying to create a church that would work for the empire as a whole uh, is the church should govern itself through its own councils. Now, it's going to be the case that not everybody is going to agree, uh, but the Council of Nicaea, uh, which was the first time that Christianity was going to receive a central doctrine, uh, was a, set up by Constantine uh, in a way to provide space uh, to have a conversation that would end a dispute. It didn't end it completely or totally, um, but by and large, it created a set of beliefs uh, that most people would subscribe to. Uh, and again, it's Constantine's interest in creating a viable majority that can move forward. That means that he doesn't have to spend his time or is not interested in spending his time uh, trying to stamp out alternative thought. I mean, the last years of his life, uh, the dominant movement in North Africa, a very important part of the Roman Empire, uh, was actually one he didn't approve of at all, uh, but he knew he couldn't drive out of existence with government force. Was there a single event in recent history that got you thinking about writing this book? It was really the Charlottesville uh, riots uh, and the vision of the, of the president of the United States uh, getting up and saying there are good people on both sides and really uh, supporting uh, an active attack uh, on the underpinnings of the nation he was supposed to be governing. But didn't, shouldn't we have seen it coming? Uh, that We'd already uh, seen quite a few examples of dissatisfaction on both the left and the right. And there was the growth of gun violence and right-wing militias and, and uh, crazy ideologies like QAnon. Well, that's right. But uh, what we saw after 2016 was everything was speeding up. And I, I think it is fair to say that, you know, the political uh, establishment uh, prior to 2016 did not recognize the depths of um, unhappiness uh, in this country, nor did they recognize just how powerful new media could be. I mean, nobody had used Twitter in the same way that Trump used it in the uh, campaign to basically silence uh, his opponents, to suck the air uh, out of the media. Um, and uh, the media itself didn't seem to recognize that it was being complicit in you know, fomenting the sort of outrage uh, that was part of the, of the Trump campaign by constantly focusing back, oh, and there was this outrageous tweet today, and this outrageous, uh, uh, obviously, 
uh, the Obama campaign uh, had made very much uh, more effective use of media than his opponents um, in uh, 2008 and 2012. But understanding the full possibility of where people were going, uh, again, getting a sense of what was going on on social media outside of people's sites. Now, you could see the Fox network, okay, and that's going to be the home uh, for an extreme wing of the extreme side of the um, the very large extreme side of the Republican Party. Uh, but people hadn't really, I think, grasped uh, all the Internet chat rooms and the sort of uh, space out on the Internet uh, that could give rise to QAnon uh, and make these conspiracy theories a more central part of uh, political, uh, of a political discourse. Um, and now a number of QAnon adherents are members of Congress, uh, and uh, they are swaying other uh, members of their party. Lauren Boebert is, is being joined by 23, 22 Republicans in a call to censure President Biden because of his immigration policies. And, and some of the people who invaded the Capitol building on January 6th were calling for the overthrow of the government. Also, General Michael Flynn said he'd like to see a coup in this country similar to the one in Myanmar. <laughs> I'm beginning to expect a, a, a march, uh, something similar to Mussolini's March on Rome, or have we already seen that? Well, I think that the one thing that we can take some comfort from in that regard uh, is that Trump and his supporters aren't actually nearly as good at what they're trying to do as many of these people we've seen in the past. They're very much less uh, organized. They're very much less disciplined than, say, Lenin. Uh, and his group, or Hitler uh, and his group. The, um, if it had been uh, Lenin, you would have had the march, and then he would have told you about it, uh, not the Michael Flynn uh, routine. Uh, but what we saw on January 6th, the way that all the, the different groups could be organized and brought together uh, in Washington is a sign, uh, I think, very much uh, that a more competent uh, organizer um, has the possibility uh, of doing very, very much more harm. Well, it, it suggests a growing hostility to democracy as we know it. And in recent years, authoritarian, authoritarian leaders have uh, come to power in countries that had been democracies, Duterte in, in the Philippines, Orban in Hungary, Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, did that get you thinking about those other periods in which we've seen the collapse of, of central institutions and uh, when huge changes were also carried out in a, in a positive way? It absolutely did get me thinking about it. And um you know, one of the other movements very much on my mind, of course, was Brexit, which was, again, driven by a series of lies. Um, Orban in Hungary, again, um, the anti-immigrant frenzy that you can see on the right uh, in the European Union. Uh, again, it's a very similar kind of language. The, the state has failed us. Uh, there are these enemies that we have to resist. If we don't do that, um, then 
our own world is going to fall apart without having the you know the, the sort of sense uh, perhaps to say that if I react in this way, I'm actually undermining the state I think I'm trying to support. Uh, but the uh, difficulty, the economic difficulties uh, that people have been encountering, I think especially since 2008, uh, are making them far more willing to listen to uh, these theorists of conspiracy and hate uh, and see them as somehow defenders of their own well-being, uh, which they are in, in, in fact are not. Uh, but the democracy is a, is a fragile institution. Democracies uh, have failed uh, throughout history. Um, I mean, most you know, one of the most spectacular examples was actually uh, in Rome in the first century BC. The democratic uh, republic had acquired an empire which it did not have the capacity to manage uh, and gave way to um, basically very large corporate interests, uh, which ultimately resulted in its overthrow and the rise of a monarchy. And this pattern of democracy uh, failing as it has lost the trust of voters and turning towards authoritarianism uh, is a very real pattern in history. And we're seeing a resurgence of, of sentiment in this country. Uh, uh, any number of uh, neo-fascist and neo-Nazi groups. Uh, they just uh, they just desecrated a statue in in uh, Brooklyn yesterday. Yes, and. Uh, I think that what we see going on uh, is an enormous tension right now uh, between politicians who are trying to reestablish a center uh, or an, where they can actually have a positive kind of discussion moving forward to strengthen uh, society's institutions. Um, you know, and I thought you know, whether one agrees with everything in it uh, that Biden's stress on having a bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, is a stand against the kind of uh, neo-fascist uh, extremism uh, that we've been seeing um, in this country. In this country, uh, I think that uh, the New York primary uh, may have shown that a lot of people uh, are actually interested in a political stand that will work to bring people back together rather than to drive them apart. But you've also said that Trumpism is more dangerous without Trump than it is with him. Well, I think it is. It's, um, it's, a, it's a movement uh, which is out there of extremely disaffected people. And if there were to be a better disciplined, uh, more competent representative or leader, uh, then it is quite possible uh, that uh, we, could, we could see the rallying of uh, forces, of anti-democratic forces uh, in a much more effective way. There were certainly some signs um, 
in 2020, uh, for instance, uh, in Oregon, of the recruitment of paramilitary uh, forces to support uh, the police uh, during the uh, civil unrest in Portland, uh, efforts to subvert uh, the judiciary, uh, lack of understanding, thank God, of the actual integrity and competence of the people uh, who serve uh, in our judiciary, uh, the constant assaults on media coming out of the White House trying to discredit anybody who disagreed uh, with the nonsense that was coming out of the White House. Um, I would like to think uh, that the lies that were told about COVID-19 that so profoundly affected so many people uh, were part of what uh, undermined uh, the Trump administration. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're back with David Potter, who is the Francis W. Kelsey Collegiate Professor of Greek and Roman History and Arthur T. Thurnau Professor at the University of Michigan, author of a number of books. The one we are discussing is most recent, Disruption, Why Things Change. It is published by Oxford University Press. Can, can we say that not all radical change follows the, the paths that its original proponents might have predicted? That's absolutely uh, the case. Um, you know, if, uh, for instance, uh, we look at uh, the uh, French uh, Revolution um, and the radical career of Robespierre and his uh, followers, their extremism undid the movement uh, and ultimately led uh, to a uh, more conservative regime and finally to the Emperor Napoleon. That certainly would not have been predicted uh, by Robespierre and his uh, colleagues. Mm -hmm. uh, but also people who are inside a movement uh, won't always see where their ideas are going to go in the end. And I don't think that Karl Marx uh, would have, well, it's, we know that he would not have predicted the Russian Revolution taking place uh, as he as it did and certainly that marx would have deplored uh, the perversion of his thought of by stalin to create socialism uh, in one country uh, the uh, many of the thinkers who uh, lay behind the, uh, the theories the racial theories of nazism uh, francis galton uh, the idea of the ideas of so-called social Darwinism uh, in the late 19th century that uh, if you know, that the, you're constantly competing uh, with other people and it's only the survival uh, of the fittest uh, that um, could uh, that you that you have to look towards uh, that was actually 
um, a uh, view that was uh, foisted off on uh, Darwin by Herbert Spencer, who was really the, the fa father, uh, father of social Darwinism. Uh, but I don't even think he or, or Galton, who invented eugenics, uh, could imagine that this would end up uh, supporting uh, the Holocaust, though indeed it is the, the thinking that lies behind it. Um, uh, so and as you said, suggested Marx uh, could not have predicted uh, what happened. His ideas have, have spawned a number of different political systems, both democratic and autocratic, and they all are described as Marxists. So they, do they have, how much do they really have in common? Uh, they don't always have a great deal in common with each other. Uh, the basic uh, tenets of Marxism that you try to measure a society in terms of the, um, the distribution of, the, uh, of surplus value uh, can be used to analyze a wide range of political systems. Uh, but how you work it out, I mean, uh, Marx uh, had a certain, you know, was not actually accepted by uh, socialist movements like the Social Democrats in Germany who saw him uh, as being too extreme. And certainly in terms of generally socialist uh, thought, you have uh, the more extreme uh, movements uh, that are self-identifying as, as communists nowadays more often than anything else, uh, as opposed to social democrats. Uh, but there's all on the same spectrum of a belief that you should use the government to try to control the economy to create a greater sense uh, or a greater uh, equality uh, within a society. Um, now, um, the ideology can be certainly, uh, as we can see on a, I think, virtually uh, daily basis, um, belied by the actual behavior uh, of the government. Uh, certainly, um, if you looked at, you know, Brezhnev's uh, Russia, you would not have identified this as a particularly successful uh example of Marxist thought. Um, we have a great deal of trouble thinking today when we look at China. You know, China is run by the, an entity that calls itself the Communist Party. But how much of the theory governing Xi's China is remotely related uh, to Marx's interest in the redistribution of surplus value? It's a uh, kind of neoliberal system, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, and and neoliberalism is the uh, the the style of the West. It's, it, it's just another autocrat who uh, who is uh, using the, the 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 current thinking about how to run a country. No, you're doing I rather that, well too. <laughs> yes, I think that 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 is very uh, very much the case. Um, and it, but in so doing, it, he's looking back at um, a constantly reinvented history uh, of China over the last century. 
Well, we've also reinvented our history, haven't we? Wasn't the U.S. Constitution the result of a process of, of compromise around some pretty extreme ideas at a time when the world was dominated by monarchies? Um, and we came up with a country should have an, an elective executive branch, central judicial system, broad-based ele electorate, but also could have slavery. Exactly. And the Constitutional Convention that, and the way that it worked out is uh, another very good example of what happens when you have a very highly organized core of people. I mean, most of the people who were at the Constitutional Convention uh, had been officers in the Continental Army. Um, I don't think it was accidental that they could sit in a room and do what their former general told them to do, not talk to the press. Uh, there were very vigorous debates as people tried to figure out what could actually work as a, a governing system. I mean, certainly the whole idea of a chief executive when you've just gotten rid of a king uh, is a really big change. Uh, but the members of the convention had looked at uh, the, the failures of government under the uh, uh, after the Revolutionary War under the Articles of Confederation. And they had an I, some uh, clear ideas, of course, you know, based also on state governments, where there is a governor, there is an executive there. You know, they had models in front of them, but they were uh, finding a way to shape those into a national government. Now, the critical driving force at the time of the, con uh, of the Constitutional Convention, and then at the time of the ratification of the Constitution, uh, was that there would have to be compromise, that the big compromise that the framers of the Constitution made uh, was over slavery. Um, they were aware that they could not get a Constitution or have a Constitution ratified um, if the abolition of slavery uh, was a feature of the Constitution, uh, and indeed slavery was institutionalized in the Constitution. It is hard to know at this distance um, the extent to which some members of the convention thought that slavery would just go away, uh, and other people uh, believed that it was the purpose of the government to protect uh, the institution uh, of slavery. Um, how the struggle over slavery worked its way out in the course of the 19th century, I don't think would have been predicted by any of the people uh, who were sitting in Philadelphia in 1787. Um, but they also, I think, were more focused on what 1789 was going to look like uh, than uh, looking uh, 50 years down the road. Washington, of course, did free his slaves. Jefferson, who was not at the convention, uh, remained a slaveholder throughout his life. And we're still arguing some of those things and the, the, the big uh, fight over critical race theory today. That's absolutely, uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, if you are sitting in uh, an American uh, university town. Um, we've had a lot of argument about 
how we should approach uh, our past. Um, and I think over many years, ultimately, what we have seen is that if we can admit to the facts of the situation, we can make progress going forward. We do have to admit that slavery was institutionalized by the Constitution uh, of the United States, that slavery was a basic feature of American society prior uh, to the Civil War. If we can do that, then it is possible to think about how we can move forward. But if we can't admit the truth, if we can't uh, admit uh, the longstanding perpetual inequality that has arisen as a result of slavery and as a result of uh, failures of reconstruction to guarantee the uh, ideals of equality, then we can't, I think, move forward. Um, but, but to but label things as this kind of theory or that kind of theory, what we're really always trying to get at, uh, I think fundamentally is an understanding of how people relate to each other uh, that is informed uh, by the best command of uh, the evidence that we can uh, that we can manage. But why was the American Revolution, despite its many problems, a relative success while the French Revolution, which sought similar ideas and was just uh, a little over a decade later, ended so differently? Well, I think that the crucial feature of the American Revolution uh, was the ability of Washington and the ability of the people he was closest to in the Continental Army to learn from their mistakes and to admit uh, the mistakes that they were making and look for a way forward. One of the things that you can see uh, looking at George Washington's career as a general, uh, which wasn't always wildly successful, uh, is that he certainly learned from the mistakes that he made. And as a politician, he tried to learn from the mistakes uh, that he made. He was grounded in a great deal of practicality. When we look uh, on the other hand, at France in 1793, uh, the people who had actual experience in government um, and experience in running things uh, were very often undermining themselves, and they were undermined by the fact that they were trying to support a king and uh, Louis XVI, who was really uh, fundamentally uh, quite incompetent. And uh, Louis' behavior uh, basically destroyed uh, the sort of centrist groups in France who were arguing to create a constitutional monarchy and open the door for the Marats and the Robespierre, the Saint-Just, um, and the group of far greater ex uh, extremists who were looking to create the society of ultimate virtue on earth. Uh, and uh, these are people who'd never run anything uh, at all. And it was that the lack of practicality, the lack of a sense of ability of 
how you can compromise that ultimately uh, undermined the French Revolution. First of all, allowing Robespierre to impose the terror and the mass murder of his political opponents. Uh, and then, now they stepped one uh, step too far, having started turning on his closest associates and losing his own head, um, the revolution uh, really loses its direction um, and loses uh, this notion that you should be trying to create a society of fraternity uh, and equality for everyone. Um, uh, but it is the sense guess. of the practical. My guest on today's Leonard Lopin at Large is David Potter, whose latest book is Disruption, Why Things Change, published by Oxford University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Getting back to religion, because uh, it's played such an important role in, in the history of the world, um, it's my sense that every, oh, pretty much every major religion uh, including some of the uh, the non-Western ones, have experienced disruptions and offshoots that represent different interpretations. Uh, how did Muhammad become the source of another major revolution? And uh, then we'll talk a bit about Islam. Yes, well, Muhammad uh, was obviously an incredibly powerful personality uh, who believed very firmly that he was very much in contact uh, with the divine, that the messenger of God came to him. He was God's messenger. Uh, he needed to show his followers uh, how to reform their lives so that they could win admission to heaven. Um, Muhammad's was a very powerful moral message to his uh, subjects. Um, and, you know, basic terms such as jihad for Muhammad did not mean holy war. It meant striving, striving because you were trying to strive towards uh, a better end, a better life, to understand God. Uh, and in doing this, of course, he was taking on uh, the establishment uh, in, uh, in Mecca. Uh, he was drawing on ideas. He certainly uh, Judaism was extremely important to him, and it had a very important uh, role in shaping his thought. He was also very familiar with Christian teaching. Uh, but uh, what he saw himself as doing is completing the revelations of earlier uh, religions. Now, even as Muhammad was doing this, and as he was preaching his new message uh, to the north of him, uh, the Roman and Persian empires uh, were engaging in a self-destructive cycle of violence, uh, which would ultimately uh, undermine uh, their own legitimacy and capacity uh, in the eyes of their of their subjects. Um, so, and it ended end, the Eastern Christian Church, in effect. Right, the Eastern Christian Church was very badly divided. Uh, between on the, uh, those who subscribed to the doctrines promoted by the Council of Chalcedon, which were uh, a largely a restatement of, the, of Constantine's Nicene Creed, uh, and people who believed that um, in the divinity of Jesus, that he had one nature 
uh, and that was divine as opposed to a human and divine nature. And there were tremendous fights about this. And the government in Constantinople came down very hard at the very same time that it was defeating the Persians uh, on the alternative thinkers in its own empire. And they'd been free to think what they wanted for decades before the empire uh, came back. Uh, So instead of trying to rebuild central ground, uh, the Eastern Roman government actually undermined it. Uh, through its behavior towards uh, the reunited empire in the 620s. And that very much weakened resistance uh, to the armies that began to come out of Arabia uh, in the 630s. Uh, and Professor also, Potter, uh, yeah. we're, pretty, we're running out of time, and I wanted to address the Caliph Abd al-Malik. I wanted to address the fact that there are so many different Protestant denominations. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get to much of that in in uh, about a minute can you give us a little bit of that yeah abdal malik uh realized that he needed a message that, around which he could unite uh his followers uh in the new arab state and he and to, used and the spread the of islam that's right and he used the message of muhammad to create a single governing ideology um what we could see in the Protestant Reformation is, again, that different thinkers were able to adapt aspects of uh, Martin Luther's thought uh, in ways that would conform with the interests of their own uh, societies, uh, that you got a very different form of Protestantism in England, a very different form of Protestantism in the Netherlands, um, and a different form of Protestantism in central Germany. But it's the fluidity of the ideas that allow them to be used uh, for uh, creative purposes that was so important. And you have different Protestantism in Utah, in California, in New York, in, in South Carolina, in Georgia. Uh, there are just so many different Protestant groups right now uh, and new ones seem to be developing all the time. I guess that has as much to do with politics as it has to do with religion. I think that's absolutely right. Um, okay, well, intimately linked. Uh, unfortunately, we got to leave it there. Um, my great thanks to David Potter, the Francis W. Kelsey Collegiate Professor of Greek and Roman History and author F. Turnout Professor at the University of Michigan, whose previous books include The Origin of Empire, Rome from the Republic to Hadrian, Constantine, the Emperor, the Victor's Crown, History of Ancient Sport from Homer to Byzantium, uh, Theodora, Actress, Empress, Saint, the one we've been discussing, Disruption, Why Things Change. It's published by Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. And I wish we could have gotten to more because there's just so much in this book. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. And uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Leonard Lopate at Large Executive Producer, Jesse Lent, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you'd like to hear more, you can access all of our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org, and we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available. You can also find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WB.
www.vai.org. Before I go, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and, and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken the step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going to give2wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That number again, 212 212- 209-2950. Remember that BAI is the only station on New York Radio that's 100% listener sponsored, but that means we rely on the support of listeners like you to stay on the air. And uh, that's the, the way this whole crazy experiment in totally listener-sponsored radio works. So if you like the sound of corporate overlords not telling us uh, what to do uh, with uh, on our shows, why not come on board and help us keep it going and um, and consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. So uh, please make that call right now uh, to 212-209-2950 or, or go to to keep this show coming to you on, on BAI. And from all of us at the station, we thank you so much. Well, you know, we, we may not have all of the state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology here at BAI, but I, I think it's fair to say that we are refreshingly independent. We are off on Monday, but I hope you can join us again on Tuesday when former Ohio Congressman and Democratic candidate for president Dennis Kucinich will discuss his new book, The Division of Light and Power. Have a great weekend.